It's car con carne. And it is Carco and Carne, sponsored by C&H Financial Services. As business owners open back up to serve their communities, they're faced with a lot of challenges as they navigate through the new normal brought on by the coronavirus. C&H Financial Services is here to help. C&H offers a variety of products that range from traditional merchant accounts to a zero-cost payment processing solution, which eliminates the expense associated with accepting Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express as a form of customer payment. CNH Financial Services ETEP solution is easy to set up for your business for online ordering and curbside pickup. CNH also offers cost-effective commercial lending programs to help get your business the money it needs to make it through these unprecedented times. To learn more, contact CNH Financial Services at 855-600-2437 or go to www.chfs.us. My guest today, his work in movies, television, and theater have deservedly racked up awards and recognition through the years. Of course, actor Michael Shannon is probably best known for his performance in the Local H video for Innocence. Michael Shannon, are you holding up? Are you doing okay? Are you and your family all right in the, uh, the pandemic age? Um, well, like I'm fond of saying, uh, on the spectrum of possible misfortune, we're on the lowest end possible. I mean, uh, there are all kinds of nasty things uh, going on out there and, we've managed to avoid pretty much all of them. You know, the only problem I have is that I can't work, which I miss uh, a bit, but other than that, it's pretty okay. Yeah. The timing, it's so weird. The quarry was a victim of COVID-19. Oh yeah. Yeah. But it, it got out there and uh, people got to see it. You know, it was going to premiere at the South by Southwest festival in Austin. And uh, we were all looking forward to that a great deal, particularly because, uh, my friend Jeff Nichols lives in Austin, so I was going to get to see him. Um, but, you know, like I say, there are a lot worse things that people have been experiencing than, than you know, missing a film festival. So I, I have to consider myself pretty lucky. As I pre-promoted the fact that you were going to do this show, I realized your work, your roles strike people in different ways. There's not a consensus role that people gravitate to. I imagine you're going to be here. And here, here's just a sampling of what I saw. He was incredible in Waco, gave a hell of a performance as Elvis. Bug was creepy and amazing. Revolutionary Road, Jesus. Man of Steel, loved General Zod. Nocturnal Animals was his best. He was great doing the Pixies and the lip sync battle. And the Cunt Punch video was a tour de force. That's just... That's just the way that people respond when they see your name. It's a variety of opinions, and you strike them all in different ways. Yeah, you know, it kind of makes my head spin when I hear that list to think that I actually did all that. Because um, now I'm very much just kind of loafing around my house. Um, it's a kind of a different mindset, I guess. But um, yeah, it's amazing how much you can squeeze into one short little life. Yeah. Well, I, I was concerned for you. I was worried about you because I think, was it last year you were only in one movie? <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I, I've been, I've made kind of a agreement with myself to try and spend more time at home with my family. I have these two ridiculously adorable daughters and uh, I really love to spend time with them. And 
unfortunately, when I work, it usually takes me away from home. So uh, that's actually one of the silver linings of this whole COVID-19 situation is that we're getting to spend a lot of time together. So, yeah, no, there's no... <laughs> I can understand being troubled by that uh, the quantity of last year, but there's nothing going wrong. At least I hope. I mean, to be fair, the movie that you were in last year was Knives Out, which was spectacular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, boy, that was fortuitous. I had no idea. I just thought Ryan was a lovely guy, uh, Ryan Johnson, and it seemed like something fun to do. Uh, I don't think any of us saw. It the success coming that it had, but it guess, I guess it just goes to show that people still appreciate a, uh, you know, an original kind of grown up kind of comedy whodunit kind of movie that they don't all have to be, you know, it's funny. You got a movie with James Bond and Captain America in it, and yet they're both getting to do something a little different. And I think people enjoyed seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up on clue. So knives out was like, yeah yeah but you know it's it's amazing because like i know the whodunit isn't like a new genre or anything but like nowadays mostly if you're going to see one it's going to be like kenneth Branagh remaking murder on the orient express but to like to really just think one up from whole cloth you know you haven't seen somebody do that in a while so i i really admired him for doing it so I mentioned all the different roles that people responded to, and I posted about it. For me, one of my favorite Michael Shannon roles was Colonel Strickland in Shape of Water. Oh, thanks. In this fantastical world, this character was familiar to me. Just this bullying son of a bitch, this, this bad dude. And he, he just connected with me. That scene in the bathroom where you're taking a leak hands-free just mm -hmm. left a mark on me. I... To me, you should have won, if not an award, at least like a high five or like a fist bump for your, your role in that one. Yeah. Well, it's funny. You know, the way I looked at it is, um, you know, Strickland represented kind of America or the, the dark side of the American psyche. Certainly a lot of what you're seeing right now, you know, these attitudes uh, when it comes to, you know, immigration and race and things like that these officers putting their knee on people uh, you know strickland is kind of the the embodiment of that whatever that toxic crap it is floating around this country's uh, head you know. so you've worked with a lot of visionary directors but staying on shape of water for a minute for those of us on the outside for those of us who are not in film just the idea the being of Guillermo del Toro seems magical. Mm. So what was it like playing in his sandbox? Oh, you know, I could have pinched myself every day, you know, it was just some funnest times I've had at work, you know, I'd say uh, him. And um, uh, I felt that way when I worked with John Waters, you know, uh, people that had these imaginations, it's like work, you know, it's like going to a theme park every day, you know, and, uh, seeing the sets that got built, uh, a lot of that was built uh, and so carefully detailed and and Guillermo's so fastidious about everything down to the colors and the, every surface, every little prop, you know, he just has an eagle eye for detail and 
and he's just so funny um, when he's happy. You know, if he gets if he gets upset or you know, uh, he can be pretty demanding. But most of the time, he's just really lovely to be, to be around. Staying on that general role for a second, I think a lot of us love seeing you in a sinister role. I, uh-huh. I don't know if we want to see you in a wholesome part. We, we love you just being maniacal and intense. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, I, uh, I didn't have any designs to be any particular kind of actor, you know, and for a while when I started to hear that uh, my work was kind of being categorized a certain way, you know, I think any actor gets could be a little irritated by that because you just want, you know, people to realize that you can, you know, do anything because you're just such a genius or whatever. But after a while, you start to realize, you know, it really doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is I, I get a job. I can work and I can pay my bills and I should just keep my mouth shut. But I am in a position now where, I, you know, it's okay to say no to certain things if they feel maybe a little repetitive or uninspiring. I can just say, eh, I don't need to do that. And uh, that's a real, real luxury. Hey, it seems like it's fun to be you. Like the roles you're choosing, the, the, the appearances I see you making, you're, you're living your best life, as they say. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the main hardship I'm experiencing right now is that I miss miss working you know I was three months ago I was doing a movie in LA and we didn't even finish you know they just pulled the plug and said go home and uh and that was three months ago and there I am um and it's uh it's just a real trip you know you you, I think everybody's going to come out of this uh understanding how how lucky they were you know to to have what they have and and hopefully everybody will get back uh, hopefully people won't lose too many things and get back their lives but it's really it's really trippy it is let's talk a little bit about your relationship with chicago you talked about you know the the just the joy of being able to earn a living doing what you're doing I've always sensed, and maybe I'm wrong, that you have that kind of Midwestern work ethic. I mean, this is Chicago's that town, roll up our sleeves, let's get to work, let's woodshed. It seems like that's your attitude. Yeah, well, you know. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I started out in Chicago theater, um, and for a long time, I mean, not that long, I guess. Uh, There's people that toil longer than I did, but uh, for a while, I didn't... um, I didn't make any money acting. I didn't make hardly any money doing anything. I hardly had any money, uh, but I sure loved making theater. And um, and I would devote like my whole life to it. You know, I'd spend all day building a set for the show I was rehearsing that night. You know, I'd be, be in the theater pretty much from the time I woke up till after rehearsal and then, you know, head out for a pint or two and then go to bed and do it again. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great place. I think Chicago to, to learn how to, to work. Uh, it's a great theater town always has been, but particularly in the nineties when I started out there, it's just a 
insane time. There's so much talent just radiating all over the place. So it was a real privilege to be a part of that. When did the Red Orchid start? That was that same period, right? That was uh, 93, yeah. And that that's the theater I spent those days in, you know, days and nights. Um, yeah, and, you know, a lot of times you, you'd work like a dog and, and you put on the show and you'd be lucky if, you know, you, there were 10 people in the audience. But you really didn't, it really didn't matter to me. I just, and, you know, honestly, I don't, I think if I hadn't had those experiences, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So it all came back to me tenfold, you know. So you've been Chicago rock adjacent for the past mm-hmm. few years. We've seen yeah. you on stage at the uh, Sons of the Silent Age benefits, doing the full shirtless Iggy Pop sinewy writhing around on stage doing lust for life we've seen you as lou reed is that your era of music is that kind of 70s glam is that your your jam i sure do love it i mean my my uh my taste for music's pretty voracious and expansive i mean uh I, I, music is probably my favorite thing, you know, certainly as an art form. Um, I mean, I got record and CDs from all over, all over the place. You know, my favorite guy is, uh, Thelonious Monk, but, uh, yeah, I love rock and roll. Uh, I love Bowie and, and that era. Um, I've got a lot of Bowie books. I mean, my daughter, one of my daughters is even into Bowie. She learned how to play Oh You Pretty Things on the piano. So, uh, yeah, we're a big Bowie house, yeah. And do you have a favorite Bowie album? I could talk Bowie with you all day, just fair warning. Oh, wow. That's tough, too. You know what's interesting is I just, I don't know why it took me so long to get around to this, but I just bought uh, Diamond Dogs on vinyl uh, like a week or two ago, and um, I put that on. That just blew my mind. I had no idea what that album was like. I mean, I know Diamond Dogs, I know Rebel Rebel, but all the other songs on that album are so trippy. I really... Sweet Thing, Candidates, and then Sweet Thing, Reprise on that. that that's the mind blower for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to... I only put it on the one time so far, but I'm, I think I might slide it on today, later on. You know. And but my favorite one, you know... Gosh, it's so hard. I'll tell you, the one I probably listen to the most is uh, Bowie at the Beeb, um, two-CD set of all this BBC stuff. Yeah, all that early 70s stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I like the real trippy stuff, like Man Who Sold the World, you know, With the Circle, Superman, Signet Committee, you know, all those weird songs the sun machines coming down we're gonna have a party i just i just love it and then we when we saw you on uh the lip sync battle you were doing the pixies pixie i mean I, I think we're similarly aged i mean for me the pixies were definitely one of those rites of passage bands oh, yeah. from the 80s to the 90s no, i remember i never remember anything but like I remember when where I was when this happened, but I do remember where I was the first time I heard the Pixies. I had a friend, ironically named James Brown, um, 
This is my junior year of high school. I was in his bedroom. And he said, dude, you gotta hear this record. And uh and he put on um Serparosa. And it was just my brain just melted, you know. And that's something I've actually been doing in the the lockdown quarantine here is I've been watching the Pixies concerts on YouTube. Because I, I never got to see him before Kim left. Right. Since. And I, I love the, the new, I can't ever remember. Is it Paz? Is it the new band? Paz Lynch. Yeah. I'm not yeah, yeah. either. But uh, I, I love her too. And I saw that they just played on, they did a tiny desk set on NPR. Uh, that was really cool. But so anyway, yeah. Pixies. Mm-hmm. And then I mentioned the local age video at the beginning of this. I believe because of the way the entertainment business is right now, and it's kind of stalled, I, I think we're going to see, I'm hoping, uh, a resurgence in music videos. As you would think, yeah, you would think. Was that fun to do? I love I'm, you just kind of losing your mind at, at a bar, ending up shirtless, kind of like the Iggy Pop performance. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was, you know, what was crazy was like all the people that came in to make that video, like all the extras, the background people. I mean, there are people that drove in from, you know, Missouri and Kansas, you know, just huge local age devoted fans. And it was, it was a beautiful thing to see, like that, that devotion. And, uh, and Scott really appreciated it, you know, and they treated everybody really well and gave them a nice meal. And yeah, it was just, uh, jumping back to film for a second here, when you did Fahrenheit 451, did you have any idea that you'd be living in a dystopia a couple years later? <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, that's depressing. Um, you know, I think with those those kind of books, you like to think that they're uh, cautionary, but of course we'll learn the lesson if everybody reads the book and we won't do stupid crap like that but yeah that the that kind of hope is dwindling it seems um we're falling right into the pit that uh orwell and bradbury and huxley all painted painted for us aren't we seems like i i grew up loving all dystopian type literature and films like escape from new york was a linchpin moment as a child yeah yeah i uh I can't say I grew up loving it, but I sure do appreciate it now. I mean, that's one of the great things about what I do is that, honestly, before I did Fahrenheit 451, I really didn't have much exposure to it. I I never finished it in school. I was a horrible student. So, But as an actor, it gives you a real vested interest in, in, in trying to understand something and learn about it. So it's uh, one of the benefits of it. So I mentioned the Elvis role earlier. Is it harder to do a, a docudrama where you're portraying real people like Gary and Waco or um, is there added pressure put on yourself? Well, you know, it depends. Obviously, uh, you know, Gary Nessner, who I play in Waco, was, was on set. And he, me and him couldn't be less alike if we tried. We don't look anything alike. We don't sound alike. And he said, you know what? I don't care. He's like, it doesn't matter whether you look like me or sound like me. Most people don't even know what I look like. And 
and honestly, I prefer it that way. So, but when you're playing someone like Elvis, you know, I mean, that was probably the most intimidated I'd ever been to do something. Um, and I actually kind of said no a couple of times. I just didn't, I couldn't believe it was a producer, Holly Wiersma. She had, she had produced Bug and it was her idea. And I thought she was crazy. I said, Holly, this is the craziest idea I've ever heard. She's like, trust me, Michael. And then she finally got me to sign on. And then we couldn't get a Nixon for the longest time. We couldn't get a Nixon. And, um, but finally Kevin Spacey signed on. And then I was just really like having panic attacks. And what really eased my mind was I went to Memphis with Jerry Schilling, who's in the movie is played by Alex Pettifer. And Jerry just, we had the most amazing weekend and he just showed me everything. Um, took me all around Memphis, took me to all the play. I mean, I went to Graceland off hours. I went, I mean, I stood in the, the bedroom that Elvis was Elvis's bedroom when he was a teenager in what is I considered widely considered to be one of the first housing projects ever built. And you would never know. There's no museum there. You don't, you wouldn't even know except when you go into that room, there's uh, lipstick kisses all over the walls. Uh, but you look out that window and it's just, totally bleak just like some crummy road leading to nowhere and i was like damn elvis stood in here and this is when he probably started having all his dreams about what he wanted to do and and jerry said to me he said look there are a lot of people that can sound like my friend there's a lot of people that look like my friend there's a lot of people that enjoy pretending to be my friend but there aren't there's really not many people who understand my friend so that's why I want you to do this. He's like, I don't care if you look like him or you sound like him. Pretty much the same way Gary said. But I want, I just want someone to treat him with respect and really try and understand what made him tick, you know, and what it was like to be him. And so I said, well, that's a reasonable assignment. And I, I got less scared about it. It's funny. My first time in Memphis, I had similar sh feelings. I remember driving past Sun Records for the first time, and I had that thought like, oh, my God, Elvis, this is where Elvis walked in off the street mm -hmm. to make music. And even going to Graceland, like I left Graceland thinking, okay, I want to read all about Elvis. I want to catch up. I watched the comeback special when I came back to Chicago. I read the Peter Guralnik book about Elvis. Like, it, it's amazing how how much it floods your brain and wa you want to kind of catch up on all that. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's um it's something you know, it's funny sometimes people that are the most popular cultural icons are also the most mysterious. And it's like the thing that we fall in love with or are obsessed with isn't actually the person at all. It's it's something else. It's it's an image or a, a sensation, uh, but it's not that person and um so when you when you open that door and start investigating it can lead you to pretty interesting places so you've done 
psychological thrillers, you've done mysteries, docudramas, lots of things that you can add the word noir to. Horror hasn't really been part of your world. Is that, or are there other genres that you, you kind of want to dive into? I don't know. You know, it's funny, when we made Bug, Lionsgate tried to promote it as a horror film, which was really upsetting. They actually, they would, because they were, they were releasing Saw at the same time. So they thought, well, our audience for Saw and Bug, that's basically the same audience, right? We'll play like Saw trailers before Bug and, you know, and it just was so wrongheaded. Um, but I, I mean, horror is tricky. It's like, it's, it, it, it's tricky to do anything super dynamic with it, I feel like, at this point. Um, although you see people trying. It was interesting. I saw Hereditary, which everybody was going on about. Now, would you classify that as a horror movie? I would. I'd also class, classify Midsummer as horror. Yeah. Same director. Yeah, so that guy's pretty interesting. I, I, I assume if he ever managed to call me up, I might take a look at it. But, uh, you know, there's a pretty steep drop-off, I think, with horror. Although it's interesting, uh, the Elizabeth Moss, uh, Invisible Man, that that, that, that looked interesting. Uh, the but, first, uh, yeah. The first 10 minutes of that movie are highly stressful. They did a real yeah. thing with that, just really intense. Yeah. I mean, I think Jordan Peele's doing things with horror. I mean, it's not dead, but yeah. innovation is generally welcome in that. Yeah. Movie. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Jordan Peele, too. Yeah, he's... Well, everything that guy's doing is interesting. He's doing the, trying to bring Twilight Zone back. Yeah, it's, it's back on the CBS yeah. streaming. Oh, the all access. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. for somebody in the biz, I I watch a surprisingly small amount of film and television. It's kind of embarrassing, honestly. I I I don't see much of anything, including your stuff, right? You don't really. I don't mind. I'm not one of these actors like, oh, I can't watch my television. Too painful. Like I, I just think that's silly. But um, yeah, honestly, I don't know. I. It just doesn't intrigue me very much. Um, but, yeah, I guess it's that old adage, you know, if you, if you like sausage, don't see how they make it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I've been on the radio for, you know, 30 years or whatever. I can't listen to myself. Like, I, yeah. like I know what I did. I'm good. I can walk away right. from it. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. All right, before I let you go, I have to ask, the Snyder Cut of Justice League, all of our hopes and dreams are pinned on this one. What do you know? Oh, man. I'll tell you what I know is I, I feel for my, my friend Zack Snyder. He had a rough time of it, you know, between the struggles with his family and what he went through with Warner Brothers. Um, Zach is a sweet, kind, gentle, hardworking, super conscientious human being, and I uh, and I, I hope that this this release gives him some sense of satisfaction or vindication or whatever you know, because he 
he's such a good person. He deserves better than, than he's been dealing with. So Man of Steel was a good experience for you, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that was like, uh, I, I still to this day can't even believe that he, that he called me to do that. I mean, I, that did not seem like something that was in within my reach. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he, he got me. He got me in there, so thank God. <laughs> All right, Michael Shannon, I'm going to stop streaming on Facebook. Thank you, everybody who's been watching. That's Michael Shannon. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for doing this. I, I hope this was painless and if not fun and a, a nice diversion for your sheltering in place day. No, yeah, no, this is great. No, I, I love doing Chicago stuff. So, yeah. <laughs>